Morning, everybody. Happy Labor Day weekend. Yeah, it's good to see you all. Good to be together. Thank you for making um, this worship gathering a priority in your Labor Day weekend experience. I hope it's, I was good. I was good to, to be together to sing. Uh, we, we sing as a response to Christ's presence with us, right? We, Christ is not present with us because we sing. We sing because Christ is present. And so I hope you recognize that, that, that we gather and uh, <clears throat> Christ is here and God's Spirit is moving. And I hope you sense that. I hope you sense God's love for you, His unconditional love for you today. And, uh, and you can just live from that place of being loved by God. No matter uh, who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what your week has been like, you are loved by God before you are anything else. And so um, this morning, I'm excited uh, as we just get a chance to end this series uh, that we've been in over the last couple of weeks. This is week four in this series on Pledge. And it's a series uh, about relationships, about conflict, how we as followers of Jesus are uniquely called in all the world to, to deal with conflict in a way that looks like Jesus. It's a part of our discipleship. It's a part of learning to live the life of Jesus in this world. And so I, I hope it's been meaningful for you. I, I'd love to have you open your Bibles uh, to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 15. Uh, so your Bible, if, you, if you're new to the Bible, if you open it right to the middle, you'll probably hit the book of Psalms. And uh, the book of Proverbs is right after the book of Psalms, uh, Proverbs 15. And while you're turning there, uh, a couple of things. One, super excited about uh, the affirmation for, for Casey Nisley uh, coming on staff here as our halftime youth pastor. Um, and, and maybe one of the things I'm most excited about for her is to get to experience the love and grace of you all as a congregation. Now, I don't know if you um, just know this about yourselves, but you are an incredibly gracious church to your pastors, do you know that the average pastoral tenure is three years in one congregation? So most pastors last three years in a church. Um, Howard is 26, right? Sherry, is it 12? 13? Don't, I don't want to short you. 13 for Sherry. 11 for me and 9 for Jesse. That says much more about you than it does about us. And so uh, I'm incredibly excited for, for Casey to get to experience just this love and grace uh, in, in the congregation. Uh, I remember my first couple weeks in the office 11 years ago. I was 25 years old. And uh, do the math, right? Um, 25 years old. And I sat in my desk that now had like this title above it uh, that I didn't deserve. And I was sitting at this desk and just overwhelmed by, I don't have a, any sweet clue what to do now. Like, here I am what's next? And just feeling kind of overwhelmed by the moment and, and all of that. And so, um, yeah, expect some of that. There's, there's learning, there's growing, um, but uh, yeah, just, just so, so grateful to have a congregation that, uh, that, that, that welcomes young people and new people to explore their gifts and develop those gifts. So looking forward to how that's going to change us over the years. And then I want to say a word, too, about where we're headed next. So next Sunday, we're starting a brand new series called um, Daniel, Thriving in Babylon. Uh, and so we're going to spend seven weeks just moving through the first seven chapters of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And so you can get a head start if you want to start reading Daniel uh, this next week and then kind of come on Sunday mornings. We're just going to one chapter at a time. 
uh, and then you can kind of come already knowing the story, and, and we'll just kind of build off of that. Uh, but uh, talking about how we live in a culture that does not reflect the values of the kingdom of God, this is what Daniel does. He's living in exile. He's living in this foreign land, Babylon, a place he doesn't want to be, a place that doesn't glorify God. And, and we can learn from Daniel and his friends how we live in a culture that's similar to that, how we live in empire, and, and how we live out the way of Jesus in this world. So, um, as we end this series, though, as we end Pledge, I guess one of the things that's been so encouraging to me over the last few years, or last few weeks, is how... Uh, started to hear stories of how you all have have taken this stuff to heart and have actually started to practice a a new way of dealing with conflict. Uh, Have heard stories of people who, in school, uh, a couple weeks into school, and there's conflict, right? There's people saying things about other people and and just that whole, the drama that happens um, in school settings. But because of sort of what we're talking about because of the call of Jesus, people not willing to say, oh, we're just going to let it go, or we're just going to like talk to our friends about it and, and let the conflict spread, but we're actually going to go and talk to this person. And like to have the courage to actually call this person up or to call a mother, to call another mother and say, can we get our kids together and sit and talk because these relationships matter? Like how cool is that? Um, to, to actually begin changing the culture in a school system just by will, being willing to step into conflict and deal with it in a healthy way. Um, people being willing to do this in their neighborhoods. Um, Pauline, your story, uh, the story from the journey, right? Of Like the moment we start talking about conflict, the Spirit brings a person to mind, says, I need to, I need to talk about this. I need, I need to have a conversation. And it's so cool to see the way God sort of orchestrated that. Um, and, and it just goes to show that God values restored relationships, that God cares about this stuff. And, and that's, why, um, that's why we are called to be culture changers in our work and school and, and here in church as well, as well as in our families. So um, at the top of your bulletin, the top of the outline, the sermon outline, there's this statement. This statement that just says, it's kind of a bold statement, a powerful statement if, we're, if we really understand it. It says this, relationships are the center of everything and love is the center of relationships. Love, uh, relationships are the center of everything, and love is the center of relationships. So everything in the world orbits around relationships. Do you believe that? What does that mean? Like, you, you might ask more questions. Like, well, Eric, what, what does that mean that relationships are the center of everything? Well, think about this for just, I mean, we, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks unpacking this, right? But because it's really theologically dense to say that. But we're just going to do like two minutes. We go with two minutes? Timing. God is the center of everything, right? And we would all say everything in the world exists because God created it. God is the creator, sustainer of everything. And God is relationships. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The center of everything is this relational God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so everything in this world is just created out of that overflow of love that God the Father has for the Son, and the Son has for the Spirit, and the Spirit has for the Father. That is the center of everything. And so God just directed that other-centered love toward us, toward human beings made in God's image. And he just loves us with that same kind of love, that relationship that he wants with us. 
And then he just calls us to value other people who are made in his image. To, to, to move with love and respect and value toward other people in our life and to make those relationships strong and, um, and to hold them in really, really high value. Every, relationships are the center of everything. And love is the center of relationships. Now this word love, in, uh, r- right there in your, in your outline, it's the word agape. Everybody want to say agape? And agape is... Um, it's, a, it's a unique kind of love. It is others, other-centered love. That's what agape is. It's the kind of love God is, and it's the love we're called to, to respond to, other-centered love. So with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is this other-centered love at the, at the center of that relationship, which means there is no competition in God. There's no competition. I have to admit, there's competition inside of me. And where does competition come from? It comes from wanting to be better. It comes from wanting to prove yourself. It comes from wanting to earn something. To earn what? Well, to earn other people's approval. To earn something you don't have. But what happens if you already have it? What happens if you already have everything you ever need? And you don't need to earn anything, do you? Like this, this love that is other-centered, that God is directing his love toward you, means you already have everything you will ever need. You already have the thing that, that you're looking for, um, the, this, this value, this sense of being worthwhile, a sense of being fulfilled. God loves you, and before you are anything else, you are God's beloved. This is, this is other-centered love. And then we just get a chance to share it with other people. Because it's who we are, because it's our identity, we get a chance to value other people above ourselves. We get a chance to serve other people. We get a chance to, to, to just sort of direct this love toward others. And, and conflict wants to tear down relationships. Com- conflict wants to make us competitive. Conflict wants to sort of push the other person down so that I can sort of raise myself up and wants to destroy relationships. And so this is so important that we as followers of Jesus know how to deal with conflict in healthy ways. So over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about uh, to pledge, um, to, to pause. When we're, when we're in the heat of the moment, we pause, we pray, and we pivot. Um, so you can go back and listen to these sermons. We're not going to take time to, to do much review. But how many of you have paused in the last couple of weeks? Has anybody, like, have you actually used the language, like, with somebody, like, can we just pause here for a second? Time out? Yeah? Uh, yeah, I see a few hands. Uh, that's awesome. That's, that's one of the reasons why this is good is because we can just, we have common language. We can say pause. Thursday morning, I woke up grumpy. I don't know if you ever wake up, I did not sleep well. I felt kind of whatever. I won't go into all the details, but I was grumpy. And uh, Thursday is like our Sunday for, for Carmen and I. Um, it's, it's my Sabbath, and so we get to spend some time together in the morning. And so um, I, I feel this grumpiness, and I know who's it going to be directed toward if I don't get this thing under control. <laughs> I, I didn't hear that. Did someone wait? Oh, yes, yes. I, somebody laughed. I was like, it makes me nervous. Like, what's going on? Uh, it's going to be directed at her. Most of the time, like, conflict when we're, like, somebody else is, like, angry at us, it really doesn't have as much to do with us as it has to do with what's going on in their life, right? So that's helpful to kind of understand. So for me, I recognize I'm not in a good place right now. I need to pause, and I need to pray, and I need to pivot. And so we went for a walk, and for, like, two and a half miles, we're, like, walking the dog, and eventually, like, we start talking, and we had a great morning together. It was an amazing gift. 
But there's this practice of pausing and praying and pivoting toward the other person that we can learn to do. It's a discipline. And then we listen to the other person. When we're in conflict, we, we, we put our, the way we, we express love is we say, can you tell me your perspective? From, from your point of view, what was it that was hurtful that I did? We listen to the other person. And then we, we listen so well that we understand that we echo back what they're saying. Um, we all want to be understood, don't we? Do you know that, um, uh, we're not, we're not going to take time to play the video clip, but there's this, uh, there's this video clip from uh, the movie Rush Hour. It was, like, it was popular like 10, 15 years ago, where uh, the guy is, uh, he doesn't speak uh, Chinese, and so he looks at Jackie Chan, who's the other character, and says, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? And there's something, is, I, like the, the clip is, is funny, you can look it up on YouTube, um, but there's this piece that we, like, we all want to be understood. Like, we want somebody else to just understand what we're saying and what we're feeling. And so when we do this to other people, when they, when they authentically feel like we hear them, man, it's, it's incredibly affirming. So, so the last three pieces of this pledge process are to disarm, to give, and to engage. To disarm, to give, and to, and to engage. So what does disarm mean? Maybe when you hear disarm, this is the image you think. Um, right? You're going to somehow cut off, and in some ways that's true, right? You're going to like stop the conflict before it happens. Maybe this is the image you think of when you think of disarm. Um, this is, I, I had, uh, Monty Python fans, I had, uh, I had a, a father of a, uh, a, a kid who was going off to college for the first time, and, and the first sermon on pledge was his last sermon before going off to college, and the dad tells me like, I'm so glad my son got to hear this because this is dorm life. You're going to need all of this conflict resolution stuff in dorm life. He said, but I'm worried that the only thing he heard you say was to disarm. And he's going to see it as a tactic to, like, de-weaponize another person, right? To disarm. But that's not the, the point. Disarming is listening to the wisdom of, he, of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 15, verses 1, 2, and 4. Listen to this. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise adorns knowledge, but the mouth of fools gushes folly. Verse 4, the soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. So do you hear the like, it's this or this kind of thing happening in Proverbs? And, and, And Proverbs, if you're not familiar with it, it's just a book of wisdom, these sort of like pithy little sayings, um, and the, the whole point of the book of Proverbs is to say there are two paths that are available to us at any given moment. There is a path of life and a path of destruction, and so choose this path of wisdom. Choose a path that leads to life. That's what Proverbs is interested in, and so let's say you're in a conflict, and you've paused, and you've, you've listened. You've, you've really wanted to understand the other person, and then you've understood so well that you could actually articulate what they're saying. You've echoed back. And now is your moment to speak, like to, to, to disarm. A gentle word in this moment will do what? Will turn away wrath. All the anger that's coming from behind it, from the hurt that was caused, it can just sort of cover that up and turn it aside. But a harsh word is going to do what? Stir up anger, Right? You can, in this moment, you can choose to either smother the fire with a wet blanket 
or pour gasoline on the fire that will cause destruction. Right? D- does that make sense? Like, this, this moment of disarming is so important because you can say, you know what, I hear you. I hear you. Like, yes, it's a great point, but you're wrong. And a harsh word is going to do what? It's going to stir up anger. It's going to undo all of the listening that has been done. But a gentle word in this moment is going to turn away wrath. So what does a gentle word look like? So you're there, you're listening, and you say, you know what, I, I see where you're coming from. Your, your point of view makes sense. I get it. If you came to me and you said, Eric, this thing that you did was, was really hurtful to me. Um, and I, in that moment, I stopped my defense mechanisms. So I said, what do you mean it was hurtful? They're like, you know, that natural defense mechanism. I stopped that, and I paused, and I prayed for a change of heart, and I pivoted to say, God, I, I really want to hear what this other person has to say, and I value that they're coming to me and not to somebody else about this. And then I listened. I said, would, tell me, like, would you help me understand what I did that hurt you? And then you told me, and I maybe asked more questions about that, and then I... I understood, and I understood well enough to say, like, is this what you're saying? Is this why this was hurtful? And you say, yeah, that's why it was hurtful. And then I say, I get it. I, I understand. That makes sense to me. What does that do to the tension that was between us when there's a gentle word in that moment? I mean, it just sort of, it brings us closer together, doesn't it? What happens in that moment if I say, okay, yeah, I see your point of view, but you're wrong? Yes, but here's why I said what I said, or here's why I did what I did. What does that do? When, I, when, when I'm defensive in that moment, it, it makes you feel defensive too. And so in, in this moment of disarming, it is, uh, it is ours to just simply listen and to respond and to do everything we can to see the point of view of the other person, to step into their shoes, to, to live with empathy in that moment. And then... If we've done something, right, like if I did something to you that was hurtful, to, to apologize for it. To say, you know what, I see, I see where you're coming from. I understand why that was hurtful, and I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry. Um, to just simply uh, to, to apologize, to own the offense, to own what it was. Um, and one of the things, this kind of a real practical thing is I've learned not to do is to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Because do you know what that does when you say, will you forgive me? Is it puts the responsibility back on the other person who was offended to forgive me in this moment. And I hope they will forgive me. And if they're a follower of Jesus, they're kind of called to forgive me. But I'm just going to own my, my, my side of it. I'm going to say, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I apologize. And I'm going to trust that the Spirit is going to work to bring us closer together. Does that make sense? That's what disarming is. It's, it's that gentle word in this moment that turns aside wrath. So be very aware of the yes, but. Be very aware of the, like, yes, I hear you, but here's why you're wrong. Um, Hold on to the but and just stick with the yes in this moment. Never mind. So, disarming. Uh, Second is is give. So, like, in this moment then, when we've, we've heard, we've understood, we've, we've acknowledged our part in it, we've maybe apologized, like, maybe there's a moment when, when we realize that, you know what, I actually have a bit different perspective on this thing. Whatever it is we're talking about, I, I see it a little bit differently. And if you have done the work of listening to the other person, you are much more likely to have a chance to be able to say, would it be okay if I shared my perspective? 
Like, would, would it be okay if I just told you kind of how this seemed to me? And if you've done the work, it's much more likely that a person will listen to you. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. In Luke 6, uh, verses 37 and 38, Jesus talking about the importance of relationships, he says this, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And here, verse 38, give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so this is, this is powerful, what Jesus is saying. And, and we, could, we could maybe ask all sorts of questions about the Scripture. Is this talking about, if I condemn other people, will I be condemned by God? Is that what he's talking about? Like there's this... This horizontal, if I judge other people, God will judge me. If I condemn other people, God will condemn me. If I don't forgive other people, God won't forgive me. Or is it, if I condemn other people, they will most likely condemn me. If I judge them, they will judge me. Is it horizontal or is it vertical? And I, I think, because of this whole thing we talked about, that relationships are the center of everything with God and others, I don't think it's that easy to parse it apart. Because here's what I think happens. Is if I live in chronic judgment of other people, it will make me much more likely to experience God and his judgment on me. Like, I will experience God as a harsh sort of judging God on my life, and the more I live in judgment, the more I will experience judgment. That'll be the lens that I see the world through. The more I condemn other people, the more I will actually begin to feel and experience condemnation. The more I live in unforgiveness, the more I will be unable to experience forgiveness. It is all connected. And, and so Jesus is just calling us to, to give. To, and, and in this setting, we're giving the other person a chance to share their perspective. We're, we're giving to them uh, a chance to, to say, this is how this whole thing seems to me. But the reason that we are giving is because God has given to us. Like this uh, Croatian theologian, his name is Mirslav Vulf. Is that a fun name to say? Mirslav Vulf. And uh, he, he wrote this book called Free of Charge. And he talks about forgiving. That what God does for us is he forgives us. F-O-R-E, gives. He gives and forgives us in advance. He pre-issues, pre-certifies forgiveness and grace and mercy. Before we ever knew we needed it, God gave it. And this is what God does. He, he gives in advance. He gives grace in advance. He gives acceptance in advance. He forgives in advance. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us and gave his life for us. And he canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. And so, like, if that's what we understand, that this is who God is, God is forgiving. He gives before we even realize we need it. Then we get to respond to that and we get to forgive others. We get to actually forgive them. And we get to give to them before they even, maybe even realize that they, they need it. What happens if we don't forgive? What happens if, like, if there's an offense that we, we just choose, I'm not going to forgive this? What happens to us? Uh, two images. The first one is like a seed. That offense that somebody else does to us, it gets planted like a seed inside of us. And it begins to grow very, very quickly. 
Um, it, it takes root. If, if we're not really aware that, you know what, this offense, it hurt me, and God, I'm going to choose to give it to you. I don't, want, I don't want to carry unforgiveness toward this person. If we don't do that, that seed will very quickly begin to take root. And like all weeds, it grows very, very quickly. And as the seed takes root inside of us, it will, it will spring up and it will grow and it will very quickly bear fruit of resentment and bitterness and anger. Like, and it just begins to spread. So I have crabgrass in my lawn right now. Um, you know, start the year, and it's like crabgrass looks pretty innocent. You get to like pull out the little, you know, pieces. And then we get to the end of August after a hot summer, and it's like half the yard is crabgrass. You feel my pain, right? Those of you who um, like lawn care. Um, but what starts to happen is this crabgrass actually chokes out the good grass. It, it actually chokes out the life of the good grass in the lawn. And this, the seed of unforgiveness, this offense, it does the same thing. All of a sudden, it begins to be the only thing we see. And this, uh, this, 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 this bitterness, resentment, anger, it begins to be more and more the way we see other people and the way we see the world. And we actually lose the ability to feel God's love and forgiveness and grace. It's so incredibly important that we just learn to forgive. Uh, the other image, one is unforgiveness is like a seed. The other is like a debt that somebody takes out from us. When somebody offends us, they do something, they say something to us, it's like they have taken a debt f- out from us. We've, we've loaned them something. But, but we didn't agree to it. They just took it from us. And so you, you have this, this charge against them. And immediately this thing starts building compound interest, right? It starts accumulating compound interest. And the mo- every time you see them, you're reminded of how much they owe you. And every time they say something that's, maybe you interpret them saying this a certain way, you're just like, it's cha-ching, right? You're racking up this debt against them. And so all, pretty soon all you see of this person is, is what they owe you. And this is more than the human soul can bear. That, that indebtedness of another person, Scripture says that the borrower is slave to the lender. So if you're the borrower, if somebody has hurt you, it means like you actually start to see them more and more as your slave. And until they repay the debt, you can't forgive them. But again, here's what Jesus has done for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness by nailing it to the cross. That Jesus forgave us. He, he canceled our indebtedness to him so that we can then cancel the charge of indebtedness toward others. This, this is unique. Forgiveness is so incredibly difficult. And the only way it is going to be possible is if we first live in the forgiveness of Jesus that he has offered for us, and then we just respond to that forgiveness by, by giving it to other people. This is why Desmond Tutu, uh, his famous, famous quote that says, there is no future without forgiveness. There is no future without forgiveness. There is no future in the relationship that you're in right now. The one that you're thinking about, the one where there's tension, there is no future in that relationship without forgiveness. There's no future in our marriages without forgiveness. There's no future in the church without forgiveness. There's no future in our our country, our community, without forgiveness. And and so this this is central. This is essential to life. We just begin to experience forgiveness and extend forgiveness. 
And then, um, and then the last piece of this pledge process is engage. To just to commit to saying, we're going to stay at the table. We're going to keep this conversation going until we have a resolution. And what is resolution? What does resolution look like? Sometimes we think, you know what resolution is? It's figuring out who's right and who's wrong. Right? I mean, we kind of want to know, like, well, who is in the right? Who is in the wrong? Let's figure that out. Do you know what resolution actually looks like? Love. If you can walk away from the table and you love one another, that is resolution. Resolution is not proving who's right and who's wrong. It's learning to love each other. And here's what uh, Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3. It says, be completely humble and gentle. Just listen to these words. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Make every effort. Every effort. I find it really interesting that Paul doesn't say, hey, make a good effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Just make an effort. Do something. Make an effort. There's conflict. Make an effort to resolve it. He says, make every effort, everything you have that depends on you, do it to resolve the conflict. So as we end the series, I'm, I'm guessing that for many of us, there, there are people in our minds there's tension, there's conflict, and it's been growing, and maybe there's that seed that's been planted in us, or there's that debt that we feel toward other, the other person. And we hear the voice of the Spirit telling us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So what does that look like? What does a step of obedience look like in that? What, what does it look like to just to follow the promptings of the Spirit and the timing of the Spirit to move toward this other person in love and grace because this matters. It matters to the kingdom of God. And so here's how we want to end. There's, a, there's a, a prayer that I'd like us to pray together just to kind of sort of seal this, this series that we've been in over the last four weeks. And here's what I want to do is I'm going to just read it first. And then if you would like to, I'm going to ask everybody to stand. And then if you would like to, to pray this with me, we're just going to pray it together if you want to, if you want to commit to this. Uh, I don't want to force anybody into it. But here, here I'll read it first so you just kind of know what it says. Loving Father, today we pledge to you and each other our willingness to grow more each day into the likeness of your Son, Jesus our Lord. Teach us by your Spirit to engage when there is dissonance between us, to pause and to pray for a change of heart, to listen and to echo so we might understand one another, and to humbly seek to disarm the conflict by giving and forgiving as you first did us. Father, make us more like Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me? And if you, uh, if you would like to, I invite you to pray this prayer with me. Loving Father, today we pledge to you and each other our willingness to grow more each day into the likeness of your Son, Jesus our Lord. Teach us by your Spirit to engage when there is dissonance between us, to pause and pray for a change of heart, to listen and echo so we might understand one another, and to humbly seek to disarm the conflict by giving and forgiving as you first did us. Father, make us more like Jesus. Amen.